Who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. We're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Fighting the desire to stand on top of my roof and scream, I told you so. It's election (laughs) shock therapy. I'm Chris Moore, I think, um, and joining me on this Google Hangout are Andy Bramson and Matt Kuka. Guys, do you remember uh, a week or so before Christmas break when Sam Mulberry approached us and asked us to create a little time capsule? Um, and we, we we selected things to remember from 2020, and we selected um lies theft and loneliness as our three things to put in the time capsule and afterwards sam mulberry asked us guys do you need a hug are you okay it was going to be so much worse than we imagined this is so much worse than our maudlin attempts to contextualize 2020 guys the capital was stormed last night we got to figure out what's going on here yeah yeah uh, it was it was bad, and yeah, just just when he thought, oh, twenty twenty one will will turn over, you know, a new page, you know, <laughs> and that page was on fire. Y- yeah, <laughs> it, yes, or or as one meme was going around, you like you thought twenty twenty was bad, twenty twenty one says, hold my beer, um, <laughs> and that's that's about right. So yeah, I had a friend who posted like, I want to do my seven day free return on twenty twenty one. Seriously. <laughs> Uh, the um the trial the trial period has ended and I'd yeah, like exactly. I, I do not wish to subscribe to this anymore. Yep, exactly. <sighs> okay, let's recap a little bit of what happened at the Capitol. Let's talk about how we got to where we did yesterday, and um, what as political scientists we make of this. Obviously, we we talked before we began the podcast, and I'm going to fight the urge to just like freak out um, because this is really bad. It's it's um it's bad at a level which is um, it's bad in a way that 9-11 was bad. It's not as bad in the sense that there are not as many lives lost. There's not as much destruction of property, um, but it's bad in a way that um, we know even in the short term, this is the kind of event that will scar us. And um, we will be fighting through that scar tissue in the future. Even if we heal from it, um, it will, it will leave permanent marks. And yeah. so let's talk about that. Let's um, this is uh, January 6th is a day on the American electoral calendar. It's supposed to be a pretty, um, pretty banal quotidian kind of day, right? The uh, various, the 50 States have already met. They have certified their races, which means not just that the race was called, you know, a, a, uh, the night of the election or a couple of days after the election, but the actual uh, States themselves met and, and, and voted and certified their electors. And they sent those electors uh, to DC in the form of ballots, which were cast. And then it's uh, according to the Constitution, the um, Senate presided over by uh, the vice president will open those ballots and in a formal way certify the election. And this is really the end of the formal process of selecting the next president. That's scheduled for January 6th. Happens every January 6th of an election year, of a, you know, following an election year. And this year was different. And how do we get off on such a different footing this year, guys? Well, there's a lot of. Yeah, yeah, well, let's let's start with Trump's rally. So we uh, the first the first issue was the uh, there was a rally scheduled in D.C. for uh, for um, for the sixth yesterday, um, and that was a essentially was it a, would you call it a campaign event? Is this a campaign event or what is this? I mean, it's a protest event. He's trying to rally people, saying like you know you've on the the theme we've been talking about for months, right? Like the elections are unfair. There's been fraud. I, this was stolen from me. I had a landslide win. Um, and we're going to go to the Capitol and protest, protest this certification or this county of the certified votes. Yeah. Maybe, maybe let's like walk through very briefly the timeline of events yesterday, just to have as a, as a baseline. Um, so Republican members of Congress, you know, 
began meeting one one p.m. Um, Eastern time, um, which is the time specified by U.S. code. Um, and at this point, um, they basically go through the states alphabetically. Um, and Arizona um, is, of course, near the top, and that was the first state to which there was an objection from both a um, member of the House and a member of the Senate. And you have to have both a member of the House and the Senate in order to have the joint session of Congress split into the two chambers to debate the objection for up to two hours. They were in the midst of debating within the respective chambers on the objection to the Arizona slate of electors when the mob basically broke into the Capitol building and the representatives and senators had to be um, evacuated to safety. Matt, I want to um, seed something with you before we get any further in the timeline. So just because we're going to come back to something here, how frequently in an electoral process like this will a senator and a House member combine to object to a state's uh, slate of electors? Does this happen every election? No, it does <laughs> not. It's it's very rare. Andy, you probably know, since you're our history buff um, when it comes to these things, we do know that it's happened um, – very rarely. Um, and the most recent example was from a few years back in which um, I believe it was Barbara Boxer um, yeah. and one or two other senators basically joined together to object to a slate of electors. But yeah. but generally, those don't get anywhere. Right. More, It's more common from the House, I think, than the Senate. Um, so the challenge is getting a senator to sign on to this. And right. yeah, and that's right. I mean, 2005, Barbara Boxer protested Ohio, I think. And then I think before that, it was 1969. Um, Nixon's narrow win over Humphrey and Wallace. Okay, yeah. so even the very notion of objecting to a single right. state's electors um, is is rare, quite rare. Right. right. So okay. four years ago, there were House members who objected to Trump's victory, yeah. um, and Biden actually had to, you know, as Vice President who was presiding over the vote count, had to gavel them down because there's no one, you know, there were no senators backing this up. And so, okay, nope. We're not okay. acknowledging this. So, so yeah. I, I just, I'm just seeding the process here because we should actually already acknowledge what's happening inside the chamber is abnormal. Right. Yes. Okay. It is. Sorry, Matt. Okay. No, that, that's good because there have been comparisons um, to what happened yesterday to what has happened before. Like, oh, well, there has been objections to slates of electors before. But you know what? Like four years ago when you know Barbara Boxer and a few others got up to object – Basically, most of their fellow Democrats said, shut up and sit down in so many words, and this didn't even make the newspapers, right? So no one really knew about it. So you can't really compare um, what happened then to, to what's going, what happened yesterday. Um, and right. sort of a systematic, broad attempt by a number of Republicans, you know, over 100 in the House and half a dozen in the Senate to, to object to slates of electors in multiple states. So it's just... Yeah. People were trying to make that comparison and say the Democrats did it first. That's just it's not it's not a good it's not a good argument. Right. And um, initially more than half a dozen in the Senate, right? I mean it ends up at yes. half a dozen, but initially there were more before the other events that I'm sure you'll talk about on the Yeah, yeah, exactly. Initially there was uh, about fourteen senators, um, yeah. Republican mm -hmm. senators who plenty of object, which is pretty, pretty astonishing. Yeah. Um, I should say too, um, before this process started, uh, Trump did hold a rally, and I think uh, Chris mentioned that he held a rally in which he encouraged protesters to come to Washington and actually go to the Capitol itself. Um, and at that point, he also said um, that Pence was going to basically wave his magic wand and hand them the election. So many points. Uh, <laughs> okay, okay. Once again, I have to interrupt with a question here. This is this is the IR guy who just gets to ask questions of my, my learned colleagues here. Um, <laughs> there was a lot of debate within the media. Obviously, Trump believed firmly Mike Pence had the ability to just, on his own, decide not to hear these slates of electors and send them back to their states, which would trigger a series of processes, which actually could lead to Trump being reelected. But Pence obviously decided that was not within his capacity. Is this a live debate? Is this a live issue? Can Is there anybody in the scholarly community who's making the case the vice president can decide to reject slates of electors coming from the 50 states? No, there's not. Contrary to Trump saying there's a learned constitutional lawyer who says this is a possibility, all that's just bunk. Um, so no, no one's standing up and making the case for that position, right. trying to use I mean, that making the case. case. Okay. No, there, there, there is no responsible person who knows their constitution that says this is possible. There was a lawsuit over it. The lawsuit was tossed, right? Okay. I mean, the, the president has, the vice president has a power to preside over the proceedings. That does not give them discretionary authority to toss 
whole slates of electors. Um, that is clearly not in the Constitution. So. Right. Okay. Right. I mean, just think back to like John Adams' comments on the vice presidency, our first vice president, right? My country has devised for me the most inconsequential office, you know, that they could possibly do, right? Basically, I mean, like, you know, the vice presidency is an, an office whose importance is that this person could succeed to the presidency. And yes, they can cast tie-breaking votes in particular instances. And that's it, right? That's the power, other than whatever the president decides to give the vice president, which in recent years has been more um, than in, in previous, you know, centuries. But um, yeah, they do not. I mean, vice, Pence does not have discretionary power. And his interpretation of his role yesterday was quite right. Yes. And here I must add one of my favorite little snippets from, from the, the proceedings the last 48 hours. There's lots to grieve. This just amuses me. And I'm going to need sources of amusement as we move forward through this process. Um, Mike Pence, the vice president's chief of staff, so this is a person of, of, of fair significance, right, um, has been banned from the grounds of the White House because Donald Trump has come to believe that Mike Pence's chief of staff is the ringleader in telling Pence that he can't send these slates of electors back to the States. Um, and so he has personally banned him from uh, setting foot anywhere near the White House. All right. Just had to point that out. Um, we're still in junior high. Uh, Matt, please continue. Okay. So there was a rally uh, hosted by the president. Um, who spoke at the rally? Do we have any sense of kind of... Um, so I didn't follow every twist and turn of the rally. It was mainly Trump. Um, he was the, he was the main guy there. I want to say Giuliani spoke as well. Uh, Alex Jones was there too. Um, yeah, I mean the, the usual suspects. Um, so, and I would say Pence did actually issue his own statement that, um, where he very clearly said, I do not have the constitutional authority to, to actually toss mm. slates of electors. And that is not what I'm going to do. He said, we need to follow the Constitution, so to his credit. Um, anyway, so the rally happened in the morning, um, and basically um, Congress began the process, but the process was short-circuited very quickly um, by, by a mob that basically slowly invaded and took over the Capitol building. Um, and, and we could talk about how there's a, just a massive security failure there. Um, but that might be a conversation for another day. Um, so basically, Congress has to get evacuated. Eventually, the police are able to restore order. I'm astonished that there wasn't more bloodshed, that members of Congress were not injured or killed, that there weren't more protesters that were injured or killed. It was a disaster, but it could have been an utter catastrophe. I'm honestly surprised it wasn't worse than it actually was, considering the number of people that had breached the Capitol building. At any rate, once the Capitol is cleared, um, without too much violence, thankfully, um, Congress went out though, very few arrests as well. Yeah, the very few arrests. Um, Congress basically said, we're going to reconvene and we're going to complete the process. And they did. Um, so interestingly, some of the lawmakers, some of the senators who planned to object withdrew their objections. Um, and but the objections still went forward. Um, so they can, so that when they reconvened, they picked up where they left off to continue the speeches on Arizona, the objection to Arizona. And ultimately um, six senators, Cruz, Holly, Hyde, Smith, Kennedy, Marshall, all voted to reject the slates of the slate of electors from Arizona. Um, and 84 Republicans in the house also vote to reject um, the slate of electors in Arizona. Of course, this is not enough. Ultimately, the objection to Arizona was defeated 93-6 in the Senate and 303 to 121 in the House. So they go back to a joint session. They continue down the list. I want to, I want to point out something there real quick, though. Sorry, I'm, I'm always slowing you down, Matt. Um, 303 to 121 in the House. So the other way of saying that, the, the, the glass half empty way of saying that is 121 members of the House said that the slate of electors set forward by the state of Arizona should be rejected. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Which is a which is a fairly large majority of the Republicans, because of course those, yes. those are all Republicans. Yes, yeah. not a majority of the House, but it was a majority of the Republican caucus. Correct. Right. Okay, we'll and, come back to that. Yes, yes, we will. Um, so we go back to the joint session, um, so they can continue down the alphabetical list. Along the way, um, members of the Republican caucus in the House uh, basically object to Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, and Pennsylvania. Um, the only time senators join the objections is for Pennsylvania. So you have them split into their respective chambers again for up to two hours of debate. Um, the House spends the full two hours on the, on a very heated debate. Um, and here the number was 282 to 138, interestingly enough. So more Republican 
representatives pile on. Um, the Senate um, actually rejects the objection without any debate. They don't even debate. Um, so it's just 92-7. Um, they come back to a joint session. Wait, 92-7, did they, who, who did they pick up there? I don't know off the top of my head. Okay. Sorry. That's okay. No worries. <laughs> um, the, and then basically at this point, the joint session then reconvenes. They finish going through the rest of the states. So there's no more objections. And they certify that Biden has won the Electoral College uh, 306 votes. Um, they do that around 4 a.m. Um, and then early in the morning, Trump does issue a statement saying that he is committed to an orderly transition on January 20th. Um, although the statement also included a number of falsehoods about uh, the election itself. And meanwhile, uh, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram all sort of locked Trump's accounts. Um, Facebook has locked Trump out of his account um, sort of indefinitely through the rest of his term. Um, I think Twitter and his Twitter account is now accessible. Um, last time I checked, but I could be wrong on that. So one more quick thing, and this seems like the appropriate place to introduce it. I'm, I'm here to season this dark tale with moments of levity. And here's one of my second favorite moments of levity. And that is uh, Rudy Giuliani, who is in some ways the president's uh, personal attorney and has been in some ways a principal character. I wouldn't say he's the head of the process, but the principal character in the, tr in the president's legal challenges in the election process, the futile elect um, challenges to the electoral process. Rudy Giuliani called who he thought was incoming Senator Tommy Tuberville uh, to ask him, because this is on this has been recorded, uh, to draw out the objection process as long as possible and asked Tuberville to object to 10 different states, um, electoral slates, to try to drag out the process for an extra, and I quote, one to two days. Why he wanted him to draw it out for one to two days is not clear from the phone call, but here's what, here's what is clear from the phone call. He didn't call Tommy Tuberville. He called somebody else, an anonymous wrong number, who also went to voicemail, and um, that person was more than happy to share the recorded call with the press. Oh my word. Sorry. <sighs> wow. Yeah. Wow. It's, yeah, it's out there. I mean, this uh, is listen. the same legal team that reserved the wrong place for their big announcement. And we're outside, yeah. like the, you know, not not great. Uh, not the four seasons seasons total landscaping. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> that picture makes me laugh every time. So, so, so this is obviously this is this is terrible, and this is laughable on the part of Giuliani, who appears more and more buffoonish as this process goes on. But what it does tell us is that. At the very, at least at the level of strategy or tactic, there was a desire on the part of Giuliani, if not uh, Trump himself, to attenuate the process of the actual vote certification. For what reason, we're not exactly sure, but it might play into the next part of this story. So, thanks yeah. for letting me interrupt with that little soliloquy, Matt. Um, all right, so that's the actual process. So by the end of this whole thing. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris's electoral victory was affirmed by Congress, and we will move forward with a January 20th inauguration. And Donald Trump has at least said he's committed to an orderly transition process, although he has not conceded the election. Quite the opposite, in fact. But there's a much darker side to the, what happened yesterday, which is the a mob breaching the Capitol building, um, interrupting the process, forcing... Um, members of Congress to flee to secure areas, which themselves were proven to be not secure. This appears to be a major failing on the part of Capitol Police. And we should also note that as of the time that we're recording this, four people are known to have died as a pro as in the process of this, uh, um, this insurrection, is I think the, term, the best term I can find to use. Uh, one woman was shot by Capitol Police, and three people were, uh, died as a result of medical conditions. And I'm very fascinated by that because... Um, if three separate people had heart attacks as a result of this uh, breaching of the Capitol, man, I that that strains strains their bounds of of credulity. So I'd like to know sort of the cause of death as these other people. But this is a this is an incident with fatalities. Yeah. Um, what led uh, to the storming of the Capitol? Well, I think it's you know I do think we have to point a big finger at the president here, right? I mean he. Um, and a number of people have, right? I mean, not only members of the Democratic Party, not surprisingly, but people like Mitt Romney, right? The senator from Utah, who was once the Republican presidential candidate, um, former President George W. Bush, right? Saying the president of the United States was prom 
kind of promoting, actively promoting insurrection, right? Um, and encouraging people to engage in these kinds of behaviors, right? So, um, you know, I think, I mean, does the president, maybe, maybe he's hinting at just peaceful protests, but boy, that's not how people understood it. And that's not what the way he made it seem. Um, and even when he called for them to stop, right, he sort of continues to pat them on the back, um, suggesting that you're kind of doing a good job. So, um, you know, I think this is, words matter, right? The kinds of things you say about election results and fraud, even though it's unsubstantiated, it matters. Um, the kind of things he says to make the other side sound like these terrible enemies, that matters. And and you get people this deep stake and they're willing to go in and possibly even risk their lives um, to to try to oppose these the certifying of these election results. So I think, you know, I think we start with the president in this story. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, even months ago, you know, when there were references to the Proud Boys and to some of the some of the far right extremist groups, um, Trump refused to condemn them and even said, you know, to stand by, we may need you. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and those groups were the first groups to actually approach the Capitol, uh, according to the re reporting. They were there early um, and they they were they were ready. Right. Um, they yeah. clearly got that message. Um, and of course, you know, Trump wasn't the only one um, saying these things, as we said, you know, back before Christmas, you know, people like Eric Metaxas, right, um, mm -hmm. prominent sort of evangelical figures saying that we need to be prepared to spill blood and to die for this right. cause, making sure that Trump um, ultimately um, gets a second term in office. Um, right. And yeah, so a lot of this, you know, can be boiled down to the the rhetoric um, that's come from Trump and some of his surrogates and his allies and some within the right wing media. I mean, it's also worth pointing out that, you know, even the people who did not engage in violence did not attempt to storm the Capitol. You know, a lot of them were there to protest peacefully, um, but a lot of them genuinely believed um, that that, you know, that that Trump is a rightful winner. Um, or that if Trump lost, that you know Biden represents such an existential threat to the country um, that he he needs to be stopped and and Trump needs to be given a second term. Um, and it's fascinating. Go read some reporting of some people who were interviewed. You know, you know, not the people right in front of the Capitol, but the people back near the Washington Monument. Go go read what these people are saying. Um, and there is genuine fear. There is genuine concern. And this isn't to say they're. Um, you know what they what they did is excusable, um, or that there's not a responsibility for them to seek the truth. Um, but they've been manipulated, um, and the seeds for this have been sown not just over the past few months, but over over years. Um, this is sort of the culmination of a of a process, a polarization process that has begun many years ago, even before Trump. Um, and this, and we are now sort of reaping reaping the fruits of this harvest. Yep, agreed. So there's been, there's, there's, there's um, a lot of ways we're trying to contextualize what happened here. And what I want to reject, or I think, I think I want to reject from is the, uh, the know nothing kind of approach to things like riots or to these, uh, or to violent actions like this and say, well, sometimes dumb people do dumb stuff and it gets out of hand. There's not a really compelling reason for that. I'd like to think that as political scientists, we could lend some, ways of understanding how did it happen that a whole bunch of people showed up to Washington, D.C. Um, for a specific purpose, and then that purpose in some ways facilitated this violent action. Um, and there's a, there's theory to explain this, and I, I'll just pitch my own personal pet favorite theory here, um, and I'm sure Andy's familiar with this too, but I, I really like Charles Tilley and Meyer Zald's work on resource mobilization theory. I've always been attracted to this mm -hmm. when I teach my revolution and political development class. I talk about resource mobilization theory, and we run through a little project on that. But basically, the the general ten and people and I won't I won't go into this in, in great detail. If people want to look this up, it's easily find. You can even use the Wikipedia article. You can, there's plenty of information out there on this. But basically, um, the the difference between any kind of social movement or any group of people who feel some way about something, right? We know that there's a whole bunch of people in the United States that are pretty upset that Donald Trump lost the election upset enough, actually, that they formed a secondary layer of beliefs um, that suggest that he didn't lose. 
Um, and this is uh, this this secondary layer of beliefs is very thick, very impenetrable. Um, and <clears throat> I'd like to say more about that um, in a little bit because it actually echoes back to my Christmas episode about the end of truth. Um, but they firmly believe that Donald Trump did not lose the election, and they have found what they believe to be compelling evidence that suggests that he did not lose the election, and they're willing to go to bat for that in some very firm kinds of ways. But they're only say, okay, so much people believe that. How do they actually get together? And that's where resource mobilization theory comes in because it says, okay, there's this group of people with this group of beliefs, and then um, they are able to establish a culture, and that culture is facilitated by leadership, and that's where the president comes into this. And so the president is giving instructions to this group of people. He's giving them a, a common direction to point in. Don't just post your anger on Facebook, but come to this rally, come to this place, come to come do this thing on this date. And uh, there's an un, there's an undergirding uh, socio organizational structural organ. Um, how do we get these people to talk to each other, not just listen to the dear leader? Uh, which I say somewhat tongue in cheek. So that's social media, right? And we've had this conversation since the election about conservatives leaving Facebook, leaving Twitter. Of course, they really haven't, um, but they are talking to each other in the echo chambers of those social medias. And they're listening to news channels that are facilitated, speaking directly to them. Um, less and less Fox News, but increasingly more hardcore right-wing stations like OAN and um, uh, and, and, and Alex Jones's uh, uh, resources and places like that. And finally, there is real material resources, right? Um, there's real money being spent to actually facilitate this rally in DC, to actually create a space for these people to show up and to apply for permits and do the kinds of things to actually get people together. So all those things happen. And when that happens, that actually facilitates the success of a social movement, including storming the Capitol. Even though that wasn't a stated objective, these things facilitated that actually happening, as opposed to a crowd just angrily showing up and then diffusing somewhere else. Right, right. It's not some kind of random event. I think that's that's right. Right. So to, to kind of put another, well, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll I'll leave it at that. So what I'm puzzled by, and I think we need to spend a little bit more time exploring here, is um, we have. Many people have assumed that there's a disconnect between the people who are really committed to the idea that Trump truly won the election, that the that the results were fraudulent, that um, he's the victim here, and the people who are sitting inside Congress who might be saying some of those things, but don't really believe it. They just find it politically advantageous to cater to that crowd. Is that a fair distinction to make at this point? I mean, yes, I think so. But but I think it's also important to note that even though people are doing it for those reasons, they are feeding this. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't think Trump himself believes all the things he's saying. He certainly doesn't believe at this point that he's going to overturn the results, right? I don't think he, he actually thinks that now, at least. Um, and there's hints, uh, insider stories hinting that, right? That he says, well, it's still useful to keep people agitated, but, you know, I'm going to probably have to leave on January 20th kind of thing, right? So... Um, so I think there is that distinction between these kind of true believers and the people who are doing it for, for these more crass reasons. Um, but you know, the, the people who are doing it for those reasons, they are feeding this, um, and, uh, and they bear responsibility. So here I'll, and oh, go ahead, Matt. No, I mean, I, I totally agree. And I mean, this is something that we, you know, we talked about, um, back when, well, I guess it was back in December, um, in which, which we had, you know, figures like Ted Cruz, for example, um, doing things that, you know, like saying, like, I'm going to go speak before, you know, the Supreme Court and argue for this Pennsylvania case when he knew that the Supreme Court was clearly not going to take the case um, just on a technical ground. Right. Because the, the case was was crap um, in about 20 different ways. But and he knew this. Right. But he knew that he could have get the, the score political points. Um, build his reputation with, you know, the Trump base who will need a pol you know, political leaders, right? Um, who will need someone to run for president. He can score points with them, knowing that ultimately the efforts will be will fail because there will be other adults in the room who will actually actually do the right thing. Um, meanwhile, he can get the 
political points without suffering the disadvantages. And I think you see a lot of that amongst, you've seen a continuation of that trend um, over the past you know, five or six weeks of a number of Republicans, you know, seeing that they can gain an advantage here. Some of them, you know, generally thinking that they could get primaried. Um, and so fearful for their political careers and putting that above principle, I would say. Um, but, you know, clearly there's political motivations here, right? Um, and it, it, I'm sure there are some Republicans in the House that believe some of this. Um, but, it, you know, from what we can tell, most of them don't truly believe everything that they are saying. And they know this is part of the political game. But as Andy pointed out, um, the people on the ground don't know that they're being had, right? Uh, and that's that's the the truly astonishing thing about this. I mean, the, the epic failure of leadership um, and the effects that that can have upon public opinion um, is is astonishing. Um, you know, as Romney um, said in his speech last night, um, in during the Arizona objections, he said we need to be leaders, and leadership involves telling the truth to people, even if they don't like it, right? Um, and that's something that we've we've unfortunately seen too little of recently. Yep. So here I want to interject that um, this, uh, this level of re this sort of mobilization of, of opposition uh, to the electoral process uh, facilitated by the president, um, aided and abetted by sympathetic uh, news outlets, um, has had a real effect on American public opinion too. Um, I was pleased. YouGov uh, got a poll out in the field um, within must have been within an hour of things breaking down because uh, it's already it's already out. It was out la late last night. Um, they got a hold of uh, 1,397 registered voters who had heard about the events of yesterday. Um, wow. And here's what's wild. Um, 21%, I, I'm going to read, I'm going to read, I'm going to frame it in the negative way. I hope just so you understand that 21% of registered voters strongly or somewhat supported the storming of the Capitol. Wow. So, so 71% said, I don't support that, but, um, or I don't know. Um, but, uh, 21% said that was a good thing that they, they wow. supported that now only, 2% of Democrats, which is, you know, something within the margin of error, basically. 21% um, uh, of independents, so basically matches the, the field in general. 45% of Republicans um, supported storming the Capitol. Only 43% of Republicans opposed that action. Um, but the number climbs still higher if you ask the question, amongst those voters who believe that fraud took place at the, at the presidential election, to, sufficient to change the outcome? Right. So do you think a, a right. fraud the choice from Trump? If the answer is yes, 56 percent of those respondents supported storming the Capitol. So we have taken wow. basically uh, a transition from believing the election is unfair to believing that uh, violent action is necessary uh, to overturn the results of the election. Yep. Yeah. And, and they're simply these people are simply parroting back what their party leaders. Um, right you know, both elected officials and media elites have been telling them. And this is another classic, classic example, you know, almost, it's almost a law on public opinion that, you know, people yeah. take the position that they're, that the elites on their side take, <laughs> right? right? And so, you know, because it has, you know, because storming the Capitol is a thing that Republicans do now. And because this has been advocated by certain Republican leaders, this is now something that is deemed to be okay, right? Yeah. Um, just Except, like on a number of other policy issues. So. Yeah. And, and, and two things real quick. One, there's actually another step to this process, which is now a certain portion of the public, a large portion of the public, 21% of registered voters in this poll said storming the Capitol is appropriate. There's now a group of, this explains to me why so many members of the House were willing to continue to vote to object to these electoral claims. There is now a voting base for this population, right? Yeah. And that population persists even if Donald Trump leaves office. And so those people who voted to object to, the, object to those claims are worried primarily about being primaried by somebody on their right um, who is going yep. to say yep. this person did stand up for Donald Trump, but don't you worry. I'm going to stand up for the ghost of Donald Trump, even though he's no longer here. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, Trump, Trump right. and his allies have explicitly said, we will come primary you. 
Yeah. This mm-hmm. is explicitly said. And I think the, you know, I mean, even before the YouGov poll came out yesterday, um, you know, there was there's lots of uh, public opinion data um, that's been collected over the past month that has basically said the same thing, right? There's a sizable number of people who think that the election, that the election was stolen, right? Um, right. And that Donald Trump should have won. Um, right. And I, I think if you're a member of the House, you look out, you know, and see 100,000 people marching on D.C., and you're thinking like some of my constituents are in that bunch, right? Right. Um, and they're going to come for me, right? Now, I think at some point you have to be willing to stand up for principle, right? Yep. Um, and we can debate about where where the lines are, but um, but certainly we are seeing this weird thing in public opinion. And I, I talked to my students about this a little bit. I'm sure you could talk about this more, Chris. Is that sort of public opinion? The relationship between political elites and and between the public is a two-way street. So political elites, you know, take positions, and and the the masses within those parties take the positions of their political elites, and then that puts pressure on on other political elites to respond and act in a certain way um, in their legislative capacity, right? So yeah. there's this sort of dynamic two-way causality going on, mm-hmm. and I think you saw this this on display in a very classic, but truly really terrifying sort of way. Um, just yesterday yeah yeah and what? it gets to when we think about this is like in terms of american democracy right it gets to a really important concept of you know loyalty to the system right i mean like um are, are actors loyal to the system right so in a 1978 book on the breakdown of democratic regimes juan lins who is a prominent um comparativist you know he talks about the problem of disloyal opposition and what he means by that is loyal opposition that would rather overthrow the system, the rules of the, the, the government, right, the regime, um, then accept losing, right? And uh, and when you have that, when you have actors who are willing to use violence to call on the military to intervene or any of those kinds of sol- solutions, quote unquote, right, to this, as opposed to conceding defeat, right, then you have a real problem for democracy. That's when democracy is in danger of breaking down. And I'm not saying we're going to see democratic breakdown in this country. I hope not. Um, but I think we do see a degradation, right? Because we are seeing more people who are willing to do that. And we're seeing more political leaders who are willing to play into their hands. I mean, again, it gets to the the point, the kind of debate between Romney and Cruz, right? Romney's saying, we need to tell these people the truth. And Cruz is saying, 39% of people, right, believe that this election was unfair. Okay, but what if that's nonsense? What if the courts have repeatedly repudiated that because there's no evidence, right? Um, well, Cruz says it doesn't matter. People think that. Right. And so you're saying essentially we're willing to tear apart the system because a bunch of the population is holding a position that you can't substantiate with facts, um, but they think is true. And we're going to kowtow to them because they vote. Right. That's yeah. problematic. Um, and that's what we're getting in our, our democracy right now. Yeah, it's Cruz's position. If I can pick, make poke up fun at it for just a minute, is basically to say a whole bunch of my constituents believe there's a sea monster in Loch Ness. So yep. I'd like to drain Loch Ness to see if it's, there's a sea, a sea monster or not. I, right. I, I owe it to my constituents to do that. Right, right. Yeah. But, you know, part of the problem is, you know, the, the reason we've gotten this position is that a number of Republicans were not willing to stand up four years ago and. Yep. Absolutely. And over the and over the past four years, you know, tell the truth and explain yep. the truth to their constituents. And yep. you know, the point is, the further and further you go down the road to hell, the harder it is to turn around. I mean, the yep. sunk costs, which is a thing, has become so enormous. Right? It is now past the point of of return for a lot of these people. Right? And yep. so, so now we have, you know, this sort of public opinion monster, you might say, that can no longer be lassoed and 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 chained right um it is it is beyond the ability um for these elected leaders to control and so yeah so the idea is like well i guess we got to chain ourselves to the monster now right because it is now the thing that's driving to totally mix my metaphors it is now it is now driving the ship right yeah Um, (laughs) right and i I, what what worries me is that you know i don't think i i'm heartened by the fact that pence the majority of the senate majority of the House, the top military brass, top level White House aides, pretty much all the cabinet members have basically, you know, stood up and said, we need to follow the Constitution. Yep. That is one thing that I'm heartened by yesterday. <laughs> um, and and I'm glad for that. But at some point, and I've probably sound like a like a broken record, but at some point our our constitution and our constitutional system of government can sort of 
get so stressed that it shatters, right? Our constitution sets up a system of government that can take an enormous amount of stress, right? But eventually it can't handle the stress and it will buckle and it will shatter. I don't think we're even close to that point, right? right. Um, but but we have moved along that path considerably um, over yep. the past several years and even over the past few hours. Um, and that's that's what worries me and, and mm-hmm. keeps, me, keeps me up at night. Right. And I think it's it's also the case that for an established democracy, you never think you're all that close to it. And so that's what concerns me, too, is like it, it seems like, well, w- this country can't fail until it does. Right. And mm-hmm. so I, I also think we should not be, you know, overly optimistic here. Right. I mean, it is we are in a very serious spot. I don't think it's irredeemable, but we need leaders to start talking about things differently and to start talking about each other differently. They've got to stop playing this game or we are going to end up in a very bad place. Andy, would you you say that um, a presidential democracy like we have is more susceptible to this kind of fragility than say like a parliamentary democracy would be? In some ways it is. It's certainly easier for the president to act unilaterally and to, um, and to, you know, engage in behaviors that can really undermine the system um, than say like an Angela Merkel in Germany, right? Or a Boris Johnson in the UK. Um, there's there's less ability to do that with the parliamentary system. So yeah, I think it does it does create a different kind of um, tension. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, and, and I know we have to move on, but to Andy's point, I mean, you know, when when people or are, are when political leaders are no longer willing to support the rule of law and basically mm-hmm. say, oh, the president, excuse me, the vice president or Congress can literally violate the Constitution and toss out slates of electors. And the Constitution right. is very clear on the electors yeah. that are authorized by the states. They determine who the president is going to be. And when you have people like Cruz, who know better, yep. and others stating that this process can basically be thrown out the window, you basically have people that are saying, we can violate the rule of law to achieve our political goals. And, and when you have demagogues who are sort of energized by a mass movement, starting to advocate for tossing out the rule of law, that's how republics fall. That's what happened in Rome, right? Um, We are going down that path and we have to pull back. Yeah. And I mean, like if you want a nice short take on, on kind of how the whole handling of the electoral college vote counting, right. was just a debacle, right. I mean, I think Mike Lee's speech is really good, right. I mean, Mike Lee is the senior Senator from Utah. Um, he's a, you know, he's a very, very good constitutional mind. He's actually been talked about as a Supreme court nominee. Um, and, you know, he's very super conservative I mean, he's been very supportive of Trump's agenda. Um, but he also said, this is nonsense, right? What we're trying to do here is just absolute nonsense. It's a perversion of our, of our constitutional responsibility. And here's why, right? And so go watch his five minute speech. Um, and again, this is not from a liberal Democrat. This is from a conservative supporter of Donald Trump who says, nonetheless, we can't do this. Um, and yet some of his colleagues in the Senate and many people in the House did for the kind of crass reasons we've talked about. Um, if you think that the three of us are being somewhat um, apocalyptic or apoplectic or a little bit both oh, about um, <laughs> the decline of American democracy, uh, we're not alone. Over the course of the last America, here's the good news. Here's the good news. In historical context, American democracy is getting better. And anybody who's, who sat through like junior high civics should know why. Um, when America, when the American state was founded, um, uh, land-owning males were the ones who got to vote. And over time, uh, we um, have incorporated more and more people into the voting process. We fought a little civil war over the emancipation of slavery. Um, and over time, especially through the, process, the civil rights process, the 1960s and 70s, we've increasingly incorporated more and more people into our electoral polity, right? And so democracy has improved in the United States. However, um, in the short term, and I am going to be real specific here, from, 19, from 2016 on, we have seen a, split, a statistically significant, though small, drop in American democracy. Yep. What does that mean? Well, it's not just that Donald Trump is tweeting a lot. Let me be clear here. There are other things happening over the course of the last four years that have led to a 
decline in America's overall democracy. It includes um, the end of the Voting Rights Act in some ways, the ability to enforce uh, um, certain kinds of standards of voting behavior, especially in southern states. Uh, but it also includes uh, the extent to which misinformation is being used in American society uh, and the manipulation of social media uh, to spread malicious misinformation. And there's other things as well, but here's the really striking one. Um, sort of uh, un uh, um, uh, unanticipating or sort of, sort of um, coincidental, I should say, to the, uh, to, the, to the insurrection that occurred yesterday, um, systemicpeace.org, which is the organization that monitors uh, a very important uh, political science data set, the polity data set. Uh, changed America's democracy score. Now, polity is a rating of 183, I think, 173, somewhere in there, countries in the world, countries that have over a half million people in population. Um, and they measure them on a, on a range from 10 down to negative 10. 10 is a perfect democracy. Zero is a perfect mix um, uh, of de democratic and authoritarian elements. And negative 10 is basically a pure authoritarian government. So for context, a country like Finland scores like a nine and a half. Like it's almost a perfect democracy. Nobody's perfect, but Finland is darn close. North Korea is like a negative nine and a half, right? It's extremely authoritarian. And the United States has always hovered sort of in the eight to nine range, right up there with the, some of the most democratic countries in the world especially since the end of the civil rights era. The um, polity uh, just downgraded the United States to a five. You have to be a six to be considered a, a full democracy. So polity is saying the United States no longer qualifies as a full democracy. Um, we are essentially as we're just on the edge of being a full democracy. We're in the area that they call anocracy, which is basically a mix of authoritarian and non-democratic and democratic elements. And they specifically say this is the unchecked ability of, of, a, of a legislature to control a, a, a chief executive. You know, this was basically the uh, Congress being unable to control the president. This is a result of um, misinformation and voter manipulation. And for mm -hmm. these reasons, they're uh, they've downgraded the United States. Now, I should say, this one sounds really bad. Other other uh, measures of American democracy have not been quite as harsh, but they're all trending the same direction here. So here's the broader question, guys. What can the United States do to pull up on the rudder and pull out of this dive in terms of our democracy? Are there th specific things that can happen in the short term, maybe even this, in the span of a Biden administration, uh, to return America to its democratic course? I, mean, I do think one thing that is important here is just even just starting with the way leaders talk. And there was a little bit of, I, I watched part of the Senate debate uh, last night um, and there was some talk about this. Or we need to back off. We need to stop talking about each other in such harsh ways, right? Because that our, the way we talk about each other then influences the way citizens think about um, their partisan opponents and and this is resulting in these really bad events like the storming of the capitol right um and you know i mean i commented to my wife as we were thinking about this last night like on the one hand this is shocking right i mean like the u.s capitol was breached that hadn't happened since the war of 1812 right with enemy combatants i mean that's crazy and on the other hand what's shocking about it too is that it was not shocking right that in fact people like a, like the three of us on this podcast have been predicting this kind of problem um, if you keep using this kind of rhetoric, right? So I think it does start with how do we talk about things differently? How do we talk about each other differently? And I do think Joe Biden and the congressional leaders can have a role in helping us to like walk back from the abyss. That's not going to solve all our problems, um, but it would help. Yeah, I think, I mean, there's a few things. I mean, so if the rhetoric can be toned down, um, you know, that could help. Um, that could also maybe, you know, bleed over into the public a little bit. I think there's going to have to be some efforts, and I don't know exactly what this would look like, to restore people's confidence in sort of the the validity of the elections themselves, right? Because that's that's one of the big reasons why we saw the downgrade from, from polity. Um, I think also some, some of this will depend on how the Biden administration conducts itself. Um, Yep. You know, what we saw in the Trump administration was, you know, basically I read some interesting articles about just 
just how basically the the core inner circle of the Trump team basically tried to basically push out anyone who was not fully and completely and utterly loyal to Trump. Right. right. Um, and you and in every administration, you get sort of loyalty tests um, and you I mean, this this is common. Right. And you, you want people that are loyal to presidents to some extent. Right. But sure. but there's some lines there. And and Trump, this took this to the next level. And this is tied to sort of his his own personality. We, we've known this is going to be the case going into the Trump presidency. Um, and and I think if the Biden administration can can you know have some good healthy internal dissent right um, if the Justice Department can be seen as being truly independent of of you know the Biden administration itself and I'm I have some hope with this with Merrick Garland uh, being appointed the um, being appointed the Attorney General and he will be confirmed. Right. Um, especially now, um, mm -hmm. I'm hoping that this will help to sort of shore up even our institutions at the, at the federal level. Uh, yeah. But I could say more, but those are my yeah. thoughts. Right. One more constitutional issue, and then I want to talk about why Merrick Garland is sure to be confirmed as our attorney general. Mm -hmm. um, there has been calls uh, that we, we have discussed this before on this podcast. And so I'm going to sort of remind people that there is a provision within the 25th Amendment of the Constitution uh, to um, to for presidential succession. Right. So in the event the president's demise or incapacitation, uh, we know who, who succeeds him and we know who succeeds the vice president if, if that no longer is possible. Right. Um, but included within the 25th Amendment is also a, a mechanism by which um, the president's cabinet can determine the president is incapable of fulfilling their duties. And there's a whole sequence of processes by which that can happen. And this is a really good thing to have in the Constitution. If the president is, becomes mentally ill, um, right. then basically the people who are closest to them can agree. If a majority of the cabinet plus the vice president agree, uh, basically they can take the president out of the chain of command. Um, and the president can contest that. And then Congress actually evaluates the claims. Now that whole process could take weeks. So if this 25th Amendment was invoked at this point, it would basically remove Donald Trump from command until the end of his term. Right. There have been calls from Mike to, from Mike Pence to to carry out this process specifically. Now there's always calls, right? Because Twitter is full of calls for things like this, going back <laughs> to the very beginning of the Trump administration. Right. But in this case, those calls are coming from a prominent people, Chuck Schumer, uh, who will like who's likely going to be the Senate Majority Leader, Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, have both uh, um, made this call. And allegedly, according to some reports, there were some members of the Trump cabinet actually having these conversations amongst each other, although no, no formal action was taken and nothing was presented to Mike Pence. <clears throat> Is there any chance that Trump uh, gets removed before he departs from his, his office uh, via the 25th Amendment? Almost this chance. Um, yeah. I mean, if Pence doesn't get on board, that game's up. Um, I just don't see him doing that. Um, I mean, he, you know, Pence did give a speech at when the session of Congress did reconvene after the riots, and he didn't call out Trump. Um, he did call out the rioting and said we need peace. Um, you know, uh, McConnell didn't really call out Trump either, although he gave a pretty forceful speech. So I just don't think there's there's going to be enough um, support for that to go forward, in which case um, the sort of second option would be impeachment. But of course, impeachment requires a higher threshold in the Senate. Um, so this the 25th Amendment process is important to realize only requires a simple majority in the House and the Senate. Um, to agree that the president um, is no longer fit for office, in which case the vice president becomes the acting president, only a simple majority. Of course, impeachment requires um, a two-thirds majority um, in the Senate um, for the president to be removed. And right. I don't know if there would be enough Republican senators that would be willing to get on board with that, even if I'm sure every single Democrat would. Um, you would also have to have McConnell would have to be okay with letting that motion get to the floor and he has some power there. So I just, I would be surprised if, if this really gets off the ground and really what we, we have got less than two weeks before Trump's out anyway. And I just think those Republicans think that the, the battle isn't worth fighting. So, yep. 
I think that that's right. I think there's, you know, if, I mean, obviously this came about because of electoral college vote counting. So it would be at the end of his term, but you know, if you had an incident like this, you know, with the president having a year left on his term, I think that's a more interesting discussion. Right. But, but at this point, the downsides are too big, right? I mean, like what, what do you trigger Trump to do? What is, what does he call for? Um, you know, like, I think everyone's just sort of like, let's just hang on and let's try to get through the next 13 days. The president's saying he's going to allow a transition. Um, all the key actors seem to be on board with that. Um, why, why rile things up more? Let's just, you know, survive till January 20th. Um, so I think, I think that's what you do, but yeah, I mean, you can see why these are happening after the events of yesterday. Okay. Real quick lightning round question for the two of you, um, which is totally unfair, but we have, a, we, we're, we're probably starting to run a little bit long. And I have a couple of things I want to ask about. So okay. America's lame duck period for the president from, from the beginning of no, from the first Tuesday, of November, second Tuesday, of November, sorry, um, to inauguration on January 20th, too long, too short, or just right. It's about right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's some there's some benefits to having not an immediate turnaround because that allows a, the very complex transition process some time before the new president comes in. Right. I mean, the transition process is so extremely complex. I mean, the bureaucratic wheels that have to turn um, for this to happen, like it, it really is a good thing. There is a period of weeks, especially over you know the holidays, Christmas, Thanksgiving um, for for all of this to, to really take place. I'd, I'd say it's about right. Certainly better than what we had um, originally, which was like months of, you know, lame duckiness, um, which mm -hmm. caused all sorts of problems. So, yeah, I'd say it's it's about right. OK, and that next lightning round question real quick is um, uh, as we as we concern as we grow concerned about the implications for American democracy, what should we have our eyes on that could happen badly in the next two weeks? Is there well, any I mean, ch more more rousing like this by the president? I mean, I think you know, hopefully he's chastised enough that he won't. But um, but you know, yeah, I, I, it's hard to even imagine, right? But what kind of protest could he call for occupying this or that? I mean. That that would concern me. Anything where he's trying to throw roadblocks in the process. Could the president instruct the the Department of Defense to mobilize the uh, D.C. area National Guard? Yeah, I, I think so. I to mean, do, to do what? I don't know what they do to nationalize the D.C. National Guard and put the D.C. Guard under presidential control? Yes. Yeah, I mean, could um, to do what is the question, right? Um, to prevent the transition from taking place. Could try. Um, yeah, I don't think that would succeed. No, I, I think, I mean, the military brass, I mean, even yesterday, um, when Trump wasn't calling on the military to, to do much of anything, actually, Pence, weirdly enough, had to step in and, and ask <laughs> and, and authorize the military um, to actually, you know, he, he was involved in the coordination. I mean, he basically assumed the role of commander in chief yesterday, interestingly, which is another conversation. But I, I, I think the military brass at that point would say, no, Mr. President, you're out of line. We're not doing this. Um, so um, but I, I think what is more possible is he could call for a protest of the inauguration itself and try mm -hmm. to sort of disrupt that. Um, Do you think he will? I don't know. Um, I wouldn't rule it out. Um, right. He did say he's committed to a peaceful transition. Um, if I had a bet, I would say he would not try to stir up a serious insurrection, but I wouldn't be surprised if he holds a nearby rally, right? Um, mm -hmm. And that some people of their own, own accord, you know, spill over into the inaugural area and try to protest and make a scene, I think. Um, hopefully now, now that, um, now that we realize how badly the Capitol, you know, security was breached, that, um, that proper security measures will be taken for the inauguration that prevent that sort of thing from, from really getting any traction. But, yeah. I, I wish that I knew more about, uh, um, policing crowd control tactics. I know a little bit, um, but not enough to actually analyze what happened at the Capitol. But it, it really is, it, it's just really stark how softly uh, these insurrectionists were treated yesterday relative to how harshly uh, Black Lives Matter protesters were treated this summer. 
uh, in the streets like Minneapolis and Portland and elsewhere. It, it's really there was, striking. There was some of that. I was reading some some reports um, about what happened, and you did have a number of incidents of police, like even in the Capitol building, um, using pepper spray, using tear gas, um, um, and I think you didn't see widespread use of that especially early on simply because there weren't that many police there right which is a massive you know epic failure on the part of the higher ups and sort of the security decisions that they made you know going in to this whole process so all right last lightning round question we've alluded to it a couple of times but uh we have seen a shift in power uh, forthcoming in the senate uh, as a consequence of the two georgia runoff races where um we now have two Georgia senators who are Democrats. And as a consequence, the Senate is now going to be, with a new session, tied 50-50 with Kamala Harris presiding over the Senate and breaking the ties, which means all the right. Senate um, committees will be will be chaired by uh, Democrats. Um, and Chuck Schumer will be the Senate majority leader with the thinnest possible majority. So congratulations, Joe Manchin. You're now the most powerful man in America. <laughs> kind of sort of. What's that? I said, yeah, kind of sort of. He's 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 influential, and Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski. Yeah. So basically, Democrats can set the agenda. They can bring legislation to the floor, but they can't afford to lose a single member of their caucus to pass anything. So what does this mean, guys? Right. Uh, what, should, what, should, what are the implications for the Biden administration and what he's going to be pushed to do? Well, he'll get his nominees through. I think that's, you know, it's yep. going to be much, much easier to get nominees through. Um, I don't think he can do radical legislation. I mean, again, Joe Manchin is a pretty conservative Democrat. Um, you're, you're, you have to get people like him or moderate Republicans like Murkowski, Collins, or more procedurally, you know, cooperative Republicans like Mitt Romney on board. Um, but that suggests, you know, things that can kind of get broader agreement, not kind of radical left-wing um, stuff. So, you know, for people worried about like the country tilting wildly to the left under kind of Biden in a legislative sense, I don't think this does that. But I think it does allow him to confirm members of the cabinet and courts um, much more easily than he would have if McConnell was um, majority leader. And I think it's worth noting with all this too. You know, like this is a big loss for the Republicans, right? They they and it's a loss they probably shouldn't have had. Um, Georgia probably should have gone Republican. Um, and one of the reasons I think it, it they did lose this, I mean, there's a couple of things I would point to. One is Purdue and Loeffler were underwhelming candidates. So I think it's worth noting that. But I think it's also important that the president, you know, like talking badly about the process and talking about this as being fraudulent and rigged and yada, 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 right? I mean, like that discouraged some people from voting. Um, and it, again, those, these races were pretty close. Um, that might well have made a difference. Um, Republican turnout in key places was depressed. Um, yep. compared to Democrats. Compared and, to Democrats, that's a good them. point. Yep. Yeah. Well, Turnout was up really high for a, yep. a runoff election. It was just high. even higher for Democrats than it was for Republicans. Exactly. exactly. I got some numbers for you real quick. Um, so, um, I mean, sort of the original November election was historically high turnout. The runoff was 89% of the turnout in November, which is absolutely mind-blowing. Just blows yeah. all the records out of the water. Um, for runoffs, which are typically very low turnout elections. Um, so back in November, um, so David Perdue um, beat John Ossoff, 49.7% to 47.9%. And in the jungle primary, the special election, Republicans collectively won 49.4 to Democrats 48.4. And what we saw is we saw Democrats basically go from having the having fewer votes to having more votes to, to a 2.6 to 2.7 margin increase, right? Um, which is truly, truly amazing. Um, and it's, it's not unprecedented, but it's almost unprecedented, right? And we know that uh, black turnout was, was very high. Um, and we know that, um, that turnout, especially in pro-Trump areas was down compared to what it was in November. And so, so basically Trump cost Republicans the Senate and handed Democrats a trifecta. That's the bottom line from this. And I don't think, um, you know, as you said, Andy, uh, that this means Democrats get everything that that they want. They're going to Biden's going to get his nominees to the courts and to the executive. Um, he's going to get basically anything he wants through a process called reconciliation, which basically does not require 
a supermajority to get through the Senate, and we can you know talk about this on a future ESC episode, uh, especially when when Biden becomes president. Um, I think you're going to the more sort of extreme stuff, adding states, um, packing the court, Green New Deal, that sort of stuff is probably not on the table at this point. But but this is certainly certainly um, a, a gift that Trump has handed to Biden on his way out. Right. Right. And you're having some Republicans note this. Right. And and so maybe I mean, you know, if you think about positives to this in terms of where the Republicans go, maybe this causes some people to question, like, how loyal should we be to this to Trump? Uh, after all, what has he done for us recently? Um, he's actually harmed us in some pretty obvious ways. So things are shaping up. Uh, we will be back in your feed real soon. I'm going to throw a few things down the pipe here that we have to talk about. So, guys, in our, uh, next time we get together, we've got to talk about what the loss of the Senate means and the uh, all of these events mean for the future of the Republican Party. We're seeing what is normally a very cohesive group of legislatures cracking at the seams here, and we need to unpack that. And second... Um, I'm going to sound like a broken record now, Matt. We need to return to this question of truth because I have a burgeoning group of conservative friends on social media who are absolutely convinced that no Trump supporters were involved in the storming of the Capitol, that these were all anti anti Antifa crisis actors right. uh, right. who are pretending to be Trump supporters. And this is false. Um, and we need to talk about how these false ideas are spread and how they... Um, uh, where they're coming from, and if anything can be done about this, please save me from my cynicism. Um, right. So thanks, y'all. Thanks for this conversation. Uh, folks, stay tuned to the news. Um, this is a bad spot for the United States. Uh, pray for our leaders, uh, pray for our processes, and support truth. Thanks for listening to us. You can always get a hold of us at electionshocktherapy at gmail.com. So please subscribe to the channel. A lot of great stuff coming down the pipe here, especially as we get rolling uh, here in, in interim. Um, and uh, you can always get uh, get a hold of the channel at channel 3900 at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until you hear from us next time, thanks for listening. And as Abraham Lincoln would say, go Royals. <laughs>